Amen. We are looking at John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, where we left off last Lord's Day. We have been making our way through the great fourth gospel. One of the things I may not have noted to you in, in detail is John's gospel mentions different accounts than the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and he doesn't give us other things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us. He doesn't mention the transfiguration. He doesn't mention Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. He doesn't mention the temptation in the wilderness explicitly. And, and the very simple reason is because John is wanting to give us other things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't give us. He wanted us to have a more, more full-orbed understanding of some of the things that happened in the life of the Lord Jesus. And we know at the end of this book, don't we, that he says many other things were done, that if they were all recorded, the whole world couldn't contain all that Jesus did and taught. And yet, John is giving us what he, he uh, thinks are some of the most important things. And, and we have seen his interactions with Nicodemus. We have seen his interaction with the woman at the well. And most recently, we have seen the Samaritan revival that broke out because of the witness of the woman and because of the word of Jesus. And now Jesus has moved out of Samaria, and he is heading back into Israel, and he's going back into the region from which he came. He's going to end up, we'll see this morning, back in Cana of Galilee, where he did the first miracle. And this is now going to be the account of his second miracle, the second in Cana of Galilee and the second of seven in the Gospel of John. Remember, we said that at the beginning. There are seven miracles, beginning with the water to wine and ending with the rising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And this here, as we're looking this morning, is going to be the second miracle that Jesus does here. Now, notice that having moved on from that Samaritan revival where they had confessed this is the Savior of the world, John now writes, after the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown or homeland. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked that the hour he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea. To Galilee. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know about you, but I have often marveled at the way that God uses seemingly 
incredibly difficult circumstances to draw people to Christ. Painful circumstances. I remember probably 15 or so years ago, I was candidating at a church in a very small rural town in North Carolina. And during the candidating process, uh, we sat down with all the, the search committee members and they, they said, you know, we want to give our testimony to you so you can know how Christ has worked in our life. And, and they went around the room and they came to the last man and he was probably 76 or 77 years old. He was a farmer and he was a sweet and simple sort of individual. And he and his wife sat there, and, and she said, do you want to tell him? And he said, yeah, I'll tell him. And he said, when I was about 40 years old, I had a seven-year-old son. My wife and I were driving, and we got in a car accident, and my, my seven-year-old son lay in the back bleeding to death. And my wife started crying and s started praying. And he said, we had been church members for 20 or so years. And my wife said, are you praying? And he said, I've never prayed before. And she said, well, you better start doing it now. And he said, I got on my knees outside that car and I started praying. He said, God took my son, but I was converted. It was a powerful testimony. It might have been the most powerful testimony I've ever heard in my life. Instead of getting bitter, that man saw that God was doing something in his life. And the moment when God did the hard thing of taking his beloved son was the moment when that man came to trust in the Son of God. Now, there is a story of a man with a sick son. It's going to end differently than this man's story ended. And yet God is going to use the very painful difficulty and circumstances of this man's life to bring him to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, as I've noted, has moved out of Samaria, and, and he has now departed for Galilee. He, he is picking up what, what began in chapter 4, verse 3. Remember, he was taking a bit of a detour. Samaria was not the way he had to go. He went that way because God was pursuing the woman at the well and was wanting to save those Gentile uh, Samaritans. And now Jesus is coming back into the mission that he had come for, and he is returning again to Galilee. And then notice there's this parenthetical statement in verse 44, and, and it's one of those statements that we have probably often uh, said. We, we know the Lord Jesus taught this. Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his homeland. Now, theologians are divided over this. There are about 10 plausible explanations of what's happening here. If Jesus knows that a prophet's not ex uh, accepted in his homeland or hometown, the word could be translated either way, then, then why does he go to his homeland? And, and if Jesus knows that a prophet is not without honor except where he's from, why then does it say he went back to where he was from and they welcomed him? There have even been people for many, many centuries who have said, look, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Look, don't ever be so foolish as to think you see a contradiction in two verses that John didn't see when he wrote it. Don't ever be so foolish as to think you're smarter than the man writing this. He knows what he's writing, and so it's not saying 
contradictory things. In fact, I would argue that whatever conclusion we draw about what is meant by the homeland, whether that's Nazareth and maybe Jesus is reflecting on his rejection in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, or whether he's, he's speaking of Galilee, and I think probably he is speaking of the whole region, that, 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 that he knows he's not going to be ex- accepted, and yet he's going there. He's going, bringing the gospel. Remember, he came to his own, John said. But his own did not receive him. But he came to his own. He came as the covenant Lord for the covenant people. He came to bring salvation to Israel. Remember, he said salvation. He just said this to the woman at the well. Remember, salvation is of the Jews. That to them first must the kingdom be proclaimed and the gospel proclaimed. And yet Jesus is aware that that his countrymen, they, they want to be wowed with signs and wonders without the Savior to whom the signs and wonders pointed. Nevertheless, he goes. um, And when he comes there, we're told that the Galileans welcomed him. Now, before we look at this passage and the three points I want to give you this morning, just a note, John will often talk about people believing or welcoming Jesus, and yet it's not a saving belief or welcoming. They're welcoming him because they had been at the feast. They'd seen the miracles, and, and they, they wanted to see more. They wanted, they wanted a miracle-working prophet to show off. I mean, he had grown up around them. And, and you know, just like anyone who grows up in a hometown and then they become famous, the people, they want to, they want to celebrate them because, look, he, now this person came from us. They, they didn't care about him before. Now he's doing miracles. Now they want him to be their celebrity miracle-working prophet. And Jesus is not going to be that for them. And so they are not really welcoming him in any saving way. But I want us to see this morning that that sets the background for how Christ deals with this royal official, this nobleman, who comes to him over his sick son. And I want us to consider three things this morning. First, the trial, then the test, and then the trust of the nobleman. The trial of the nobleman, the testing of the nobleman, and then the trust of the nobleman. We'll notice in verse 46, John says, he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. Now, to the best of our ability, we, could, we can conclude that based on the Greek word for, translated here official, this was a royal official in Herod's kingdom. So this would have been a, a very high political officer in Herod's kingdom. He would have obviously been very rich. He was also very powerful. We don't know whether he was a Jew or a Gentile. We, we think he was probably a Jew who had made his way up the ranks. And, and he probably would have been a man who had done a lot of ruthless things to a lot of people. There's no sense that this is a good man. We're going to come back to that. Um, so a rich, powerful, uh, public official in Herod's kingdom, and he's coming to Jesus. Now keep in mind, this is not the kind of man that comes to a lowly car- carpenter-turned-prophet out of Nazareth. Uh, this is a man who has a lot of means, a lot of wealth. He can take care of things for himself. He probably has the best resources, the best, best health care that Galilee can afford. 
and Judea can afford. Um, and yet his son is dying, and he can't do a single thing for him. You know, A.W. Pink, the Baptist of the 19th century and 20th century, said the rich have their troubles as well as the poor. Dwellers in palaces are little better off than dwellers in cottages. No doubt this nobleman had tried every remedy which money could produce, but money is not almighty. Many invest it with an imaginary value that it is far from possessing. Money cannot purchase happiness, nor can it ensure health. There is just as much sickness among the aristocracy as there is among the common artisans. You know, this is a lesson it would be good for us to keep in mind that the death is no is no honorer of wealth. Um, you know, I've, I've often been saddened when I hear the way certain Christians speak, and, and it's right to invest, it's good to invest, it's good to plan for the future, but, but many speak of financial provisions and security for themselves as if nothing's ever going to happen. And many of us, honestly, we, we think nothing could ever happen to our children. Um, and this man teaches us both things, that money cannot um, protect the wealthiest from the miseries of this life and that God can take a child whenever he wants. You know, human history is replete with examples of children dying. John Calvin lost most of his children. John Owen lost most of his children, buried most of their children. Um, and so it's important for us to remember that this is a dark and perishing world. Isn't that the point of John's gospel, that light and life have come into a dark and perishing world, a world of darkness and death? And, and here, that's felt, and that nobleman feels his weakness. He feels his need. God is using the circumstances of his life to bring him to the Savior. And, and so often, that's what we need. When times are good, we forget about the Lord. In times of prosperity, we forget to call on him and trust him. You know, I, I never forget this. Sinclair Ferguson, many, many years ago, preaching to a, a church full of doctors and lawyers. He was preaching on, give us this day our daily bread, out of the Lord's Prayer. And he said, he said at one point, you know, maybe you fancy yourself to be one of those scientific types. And you think, I don't need, I don't need to call on the Lord for daily bread because I have a refrigerator full of it because I work hard and I ensure that we have food in there. And Ferguson said the problem is you can't even get up on your two feet and walk to that refrigerator and open that door unless God enables you to do so. You can't even get on your two feet and walk to the door and breathe on your way there unless God is enabling you to do so. And here the Lord is teaching us that oftentimes it takes critical situations to bring people to saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But notice in verse 47, this man had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, and he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, maybe this man had been at the wedding feast. We don't know. He had clearly heard that Jesus could do miraculous things, and so there was something happening within this man. God was already producing faith in him, and yet it was a weak faith, as we're going to see from our Lord's response. He comes to Jesus. He wants him to heal his son. He comes, and, and we see the sort of the, the weakness of the faith in the trial. He comes to Jesus, and notice this. He asks him to come down and heal his son. He wants him to come to his home and be 
physically present with his son because at this point, this man thinks, well, this man, Jesus, might be able to do something for me, but he's probably going to have to be physically present in order to do it. There's a contrast between this man and the centurion whose servant was sick. Remember that very similar passage where that centurion tells Jesus, don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy. I'm a man under authority, and I say, go to this one, and to this one come, and they go, and they come, and all you have to do is say the word, and my servant will be made well. That is the sort of saving faith Jesus was interested in producing in his people. This man, he thinks that the presence of Christ is necessary, just like the woman who touched Jesus' garment and said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. It's true faith, but it's weak faith. It's, It's a mixture of faith and unbelief. John Calvin says here he views the power of Christ as inseparably connected with his bodily presence from which it is evident that he had formed no other view concerning Christ than this, than that he was a prophet sent by God with such authority and power as to prove by performance and miracles that he was a minister of God. So at this point, he doesn't realize this is God. He doesn't realize this is God in the flesh. He will come to realize that. But at this point, he just thinks this is a prophet like Elijah. But if he would come down like Elijah and Elisha did and and visit those that needed to be raised or healed, that God would do that. Now, we've considered briefly here the trial. And now I want us to consider the testing of the nobleman. Now, Jesus responds to this request with a rebuke. And, And there are certain times in the Gospels when you ought to be taken back by Jesus's response. The, the, right, the right way of reading this would be, why in the world would the merciful and gracious Savior, who says, come unto me and I will give you rest for your souls, why would he respond in such a seemingly harsh, rebuking way? Notice Jesus says to him in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, Here's where our English translations don't help us. And and sadly, I wish we had better Bibles. If Jesus had been here in Charleston, it would have sounded a little bit like this. I'm sorry I don't have a Charleston accent. I wish I did. But but Jesus would have said, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. So so both plurals. And and he he is not speaking so much to the noblemen. He is by way of inference. But he's speaking about all the people. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Remember, I told you already, he mentioned a prophet has no honor in his own homeland. He knows that the people just want signs and wonders, and he's not coming to just be a miracle-working spectator, a, a spectacle for people. You know, I think even though we live in a much more rationalistic and scientific age, Um, many people want a miracle-working Jesus, not the Jesus who is the Savior who happened to work miracles to show that he is the Savior of the world. And they come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Um, they, They just come for the powerful things in the here and now. Now, let me say this because I don't want to be misunderstood. We are to pray 
for powerful healing of believers. There are some Reformed people that swing the pendulum the other way, and, and they say, well, we're, we're not all about miracles, so Lord, just give this person the grace to suffer. And that, that's not biblical either. That's partially what we should pray for one another. But remember, the Apostle John, I believe in Third John, had said, I pray that you, you may be in health and prosper just as your soul does, the whole of you. And, and praise God, the psalmist says, he forgives our sins and heals our diseases. Those are, those are good and right things to trust the Lord for, for the healing of the souls and the bodies of his people. And yet we know ultimately that there is not going to be any long-term uh, physical miracle of healing that is going to last in any way. We're waiting for a resurrection on the last day. That's where the healing of all healings occurs. That's where the miracle of miracles happens. We are all going to the grave, the young and the old, the rich and the poor. The same thing happens to them all. We are all heading to the grave, and yet there is a Savior that we are to trust. Now, Jesus is not going to let a people merely follow him for his show of miracles. I was struck this week thinking about this and thinking about the end of John 2 where John says Jesus did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in all men. Um, I was thinking about John 6, which we'll get to in a little while, where um, Jesus feeds the multitudes, and he has a potential megachurch of up to 20,000 people. But when they want him for the wrong reasons, he walks away with 11. And in a day, and in a country, when the church loves to market ministers and teachers and churches, uh, it would do us good to go back and see how the Lord Jesus dealt with things. He would not for one minute market himself based on his miracles, and he would not have you follow him for the wrong reasons. Um, Jesus wants us to follow him because we need a savior. Uh, he wants us to, and I love the way the hymn puts it, all the need that he requires is that you feel your need for him. He wants you to feel your need for him. He wants you to feel the burden of your sin, the guilt of your sin, and to come to him as the savior who takes that sin on himself on the cross. And when you do, he doesn't turn you away. I've noted before to you all that there's not one time in the Gospels when someone cries out to Jesus for mercy that he or she doesn't get the mercy for which they cry. And yet here, Jesus seems to be turning this man away. What he's doing is he is both exposing the people and he is testing the noblemen. Um, because this man thought that Jesus was limited to physical presence, because he probably thought he was just a prophet and not God himself, Jesus is testing him. And, and the test is much like what he does with the Syrophoenician woman. Remember in Matthew chapter 15, when that woman comes and her daughter's sick and she's begging Jesus to heal, and, and he says it's not good to give the children's bread to the little dogs. And, and you think, oh, wow, that's harsh. Jesus is calling this Gentile woman a dog and not healing her daughter, and then and she realizes that the bread are the miracles, and, and she overcomes that hurdle, and she says, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs. For you to heal my daughter, it would just be crumbs. It's not even bread. Please, Lord, do this. It's, it's nothing for you. And, and, and the crowds are trying to turn her away, and she's overcoming all the hurdles 
to get to the place where her faith is set on who the Lord Jesus is. And in the same way, this, this nobleman is going to go through this testing in order to be brought to a place of trusting. You know, Calvin also noted very interestingly, a man of this rank, I want you to think about this, a man of this influence, and I, I've been around, I've been around people who think they're influential. Usually they're, they're much bigger in their heads than they are. Um, and, and, and they do not take rebuke well. Um, I had a man say to me once, uh, such a man, say to me once, I want a pastor I can control. And I said, well, it stinks for you. It's not going to be me. And he did not take that well. Um, this, this nobleman, according to human standards, should not have taken this well. This, this lowly carpenter from Nazareth telling him, all you people want is signs and wonders. And yet, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna face that hurdle because his longing for his son to be healed, and he's going to realize more and more who Jesus is. Now, notice this. Um, and I, I said this before, there's no indication that this man is godly. In fact, he almost certainly would have been involved with some kind of egregious sins in the kingdom. I, you know, we look at what's going on around the world and, you know, the tyranny of dictatorships. This was a dictatorship. This was an empire. All kinds of heinous, violent things happened at the hands of men like this man, and yet Jesus doesn't once treat him according to his sin. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, woe to you, you wicked official in Herod's palace. Now, he's not dismissing his sin, but what it's going to show is that what Jesus is going to do for him is entirely by grace. It's entirely grace. And that's going to point to the fact that our salvation is entirely by grace. Now, what is grace? I said to my children yesterday, we were uh, working through something in Scripture, and, and I said, grace is unmerited favor of God. That's actually true, but it's actually also untrue. Grace is actually the demerited favor of God. So not only do we not deserve it, we deserve hell and judgment and wrath. And he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us beyond what we have demerited. He is dealing with this man not according to this man's merit, but in fact is dealing with this man in, in, in spite of what this man has demerited and deserves. Isn't that wonderful that that's how the Savior of the world deals with sinners like us? I hope that that's water to your soul this morning. Jesus does not deal with us according to our sins because God dealt with him according to our sins. Isn't that marvelous? You can go to him with all your sin because he deals with all of your sin in his own person on the tree. Now, um, how do we get there? Well, I want us to consider... I want us to consider um, the trust of the nobleman. The man has pleaded with the Lord to come down. Verse 49, he again says to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. 
Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, that's all he, that's all he did. The same word that he speaks to heal this son is the same word he speaks to heal the souls of his people. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus only has to speak a word. Um, the centurion knew that. This nobleman will know that. And the question is, do you know that? This is not word of faith. If you just have enough faith, then Jesus will do what you want. He's not a genie. And he will not do what you want if you try to control him as such. But this is being confident that the Jesus that we are trusting is so infinite in power that all he has to do, and he doesn't even have to speak a word, he could just think it and will it, but all he has to do is speak a word, and this boy on the brink of death or a sinner on the brink of hell will be converted by the power of that word. So very interesting, the contrast here. Remember, the Samaritans, they received the mere word of Jesus, and a revival broke out. Now he comes into Galilee, the people want signs and wonders, but what Jesus is teaching is that his word is sufficient. There is a, there is a eternal and divine efficacy, a power behind the word of God. When Jesus speaks a word, the, the world and all of creation obeys what he says. Um, Jesus has power over health and sickness and life and death. How often we need to be reminded of that. With a word, with a word, he heals the nobleman's son. And the nobleman believes. Notice Notice this is probably the most important part of this passage. Notice verse 50. Jesus says, go, your son will live. And then, essentially, it says, the nobleman took Jesus at his word. What is the essence of saving faith? It's taking Christ at his word. It's taking God at his word about Christ. It's saying, yes, Lord, I believe all that you have said. It means trusting his promises. It means trembling at his threatenings. It means fleeing to the Savior. It means when we have sin, confessing our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It means believing every single gospel promise that is fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The essence of saving faith is taking Christ at his word. I was thinking, no hymn captures this better, and we're going to sing it after this sermon, but uh, the, the hymn of Louisa Stead, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, "'tis so sweet to trust in Jesus "'just to take him at his word, "'just to rest upon his promise, "'just to know, thus saith the Lord, "'Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him.'" How I've proved him o'er and o'er, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. This man didn't see a miracle. He didn't see his son healed yet. He took Jesus at his word. He believed, 
And, and that was large faith at work in this man by the grace of God. He could have said, well, Lord, you didn't even come. How do I know? He took him at his word. He went back to his house. He found his son recovered. He asked the servants about the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And I love this. Verse 53, the father knew. Isn't that awesome? The father knew that it was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. He is continuing to exercise faith in Jesus. He's not like the lepers who were healed and went away and only one returned. He's continuing to recollect what the Savior has done for him. And then, this is amazing, we saw last week that the woman who's converted at the well, that a revival breaks out in Samaria because of her testimony and her witness. Now, now we see this, this one nobleman, and remember the Bible said not many noble are called, but this one rich official, royal official, he has come to saving faith. And now watch what's going to happen. Watch this, the whole family believed. Notice this, he realized that it was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed and all his household. He must have told his family everything about Christ. And they saw the faith that he had, and they believed with him. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to argue for covenantal baptism, paedo-baptism, so don't hear that, even though I would argue for it. Um, God loves to work in homes. The typical way God works is in families, not, not exclusively and certainly not without exception, but when, when a father or a mother exercises faith in Christ, there is often that principle of God being the covenant Lord among his people. And, and at the very least, we ought to have great confidence that God will work in our children it may not be when they're young. It may be when they're old. It may be, sadly, on their deathbeds. But we are to be confident that God loves to work in homes. Remember, the first disciples were brothers. We saw that. Now here, this household, and in the book of Acts, those households where God, just like he did with Abraham in the household, he is, he is working savingly. And, and that means we should, be, we should be bearing witness to Christ in our homes. His, his words should be prevalent in our homes. Prayer should be prevalent in our homes. Worship should be prevalent in our homes. And yet, yet we should be entrusting ourselves to the Lord to do what only he can do in our children. We can't change their hearts, but, but we can have a strong confidence that God is for his people and loves when he is worshipped in the home. Remember that statement of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I remember a number of years ago, a professor I had in seminary said, you know, I'm not, I am not, and you, you do not have the privilege of allowing your children to be disciples of Buddha or Mohammed or the Bhagavad Gita, or any other false religion. He said, I don't know whether my children will trust the Lord, but I will say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and I will disciple my children to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a beautiful picture here of God's grace operative 
just like it was among the Samaritans in that revival now in this small home and no doubt in the community and no doubt wherever this, went, this man went when he carried that faith out into the workplace. I am sure he affected people. People need hope. They need to see people trusting. They need to see you and me trusting the Savior. Um, that's a very powerful thing. You know, our R.C. Sproul used to say, our testimony is not the gospel. It's not. The gospel is the gospel. But our testimony is a powerful accompaniment to the truth of the gospel. And we see that in this man. And then notice verse 54, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Why is this, why is this in the Bible? This is there for the same reason that Jesus' first miracle in Cana was there, that you may believe, that you may see his glory, and that you might trust in him. Um, I want to ask you this morning just briefly as we, as we walk out of this, have you ever really and truly felt your need for the Savior? All the need that he requires is that you feel your need for him. All the fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. Have you felt, are you feeling your need for him? Um, I would ask you, what do you think about when you think about the Lord Jesus? Do you think about him as just a great miracle-working teacher who could do really great things and maybe he could help you? Or do you think about him as the Savior of the world and the Savior of your sinful soul? Are you coming to him as the Savior of sinners? I would ask you this morning when the Lord Jesus seems to be distant or when he seems not to answer when you cry out to him in trying circumstances, do you continue pressing on like this nobleman? Um, the Lord would have us continue to cry out like the psalmist. Why are you cast down in my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. And then I would ask you this morning, if you are trusting the Lord Jesus, how is that having an impact um, on the lives of those in your homes, those you work around in the community? Do people see that you are trusting the Lord Jesus, and is that encouraging them to look to him? I hope that you'll be encouraged as you meditate on these things this morning, and that the Lord will give us grace to put them into practice in our lives. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you that We have a Savior who, with a word, could heal the boy who was at the point of death, and with a word can work powerfully life in our, um, by nature, dead and often dull and complacent hearts. We pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would speak a word of life among each, every, each and every man and woman and boy and girl present here. We pray that you would speak a powerful word into our souls. We pray that you would increase our faith, that we would um, have great confidence in who you are, in what you have come to do, and who you are toward us. We pray that we would know more of your grace in our lives, that we would depend wholly on you by grace and through faith. We do pray this morning that you would also make us fervent 
in living our lives of faith in the home and among those around us. We pray that you would use us and that we would see your grace at work in their lives, in the lives of our children and our lost family members. We do commit them to you. We thank you and we praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.